So, welcome to Rise of the Nuns. Uh, works better when you can see that displayed on the screen if you're just hearing it. No, it sounds like a, a group of um, women in a convent, but uh, we're not talking about that. Rise of the Nuns. Uh, this is our third week. We're going to talk today about a third trend in our culture. Uh, last week we named a couple of cultural trends that we need to be familiar with. And we've been each week building up this kind of catalog of missionary skills. Um, and so today we'll have discussion of a third trend in our culture and a third skill for us as missionaries. Um, so we'll uh, begin with a bit of review. We're adding thirds, we need to remind ourselves what the first two skills were and what the first two cultural trends were. So the first skill we talked about week one, good missionaries learn the language of their neighbors. Many of our neighbors are nuns, uh, folks who would say they're not affiliated with any religious tradition or community. And um, depending on which source you get your data from, uh, either 25% uh, or roughly 30% of the U.S. population right now would, would say, I'm a, I'm a nun. They may not use that exact word to describe themselves, but I'm, I'm religiously unaffiliated. That's the technical phrase used. Uh, but, you know, I... I may be spiritual, I just don't need to belong to a church or a temple or a synagogue to express that. Um, I may be an atheist, or I may not be. The majority of nuns are not atheists. About 70% of nuns say that they believe there is a God or a, some kind of higher spiritual power. Um, <clears throat> so we can't assume that nun equals atheist. But um, yeah, among Gen Z, which would be, uh, you know, it's the age of my youngest kids. Uh, about 50% of that generation say that they belong to this category. Right? I'm, I may be looking for spiritual truth. I'm just not going to look for it as part of a larger community. I'm going to find it my own way. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, good missionaries learn the language of their neighbors, and if somewhere between 30 and 50% of our neighbors uh, are in this category, we got to learn the language. Um, fastest growing religious category in the U.S. Um, and uh, has been that for almost two decades now. So that's our first missionary skill, learning a new language. You gotta learn to navigate a new culture. What, what's going on in uh, North American culture right now that, that creates a soil in which this group called the nuns flourishes? Um, we need to learn the language, but we need to learn what kind of culture um, this language makes sense in. And uh, we approached that last week by saying, hey, this is part of the biblical rhythm of the incarnation of Christ. That Christ enters into our world and he takes on himself our humanity. And that gets reflected in the kind of missionary impulse of the Christian community over 2,000 years. Um, here's one expression of that in the book 
the first Corinthians, as the Apostle Paul says, hey, I have become all things to all people. Right? That as he encounters people from different backgrounds and different religious perspectives, he's, he's constantly trying to learn their languages, constantly trying to understand the perspective they come from. Why? So that by all means I might say some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And there's our indication that Paul didn't come up with this idea himself. Right? It's the gospel. It's the story of how Jesus enters into our world that, that is driving this missionary philosophy of the apostles and of the church. Um, desire is to be able to share the blessings of what Jesus has done with as many people as possible. Uh, so when we talk about learning a new culture, we're talking about just being, being part of the rhythm of people shaped by the good news about Jesus. So missionary skill number one, learning a new language. Skill number two, learning to navigate a culture that may not be familiar to us. And um, what are some trends in that culture? We talked last week about expressive individualism. Um, the idea that each individual creates truth for themselves and um, facts are a bit pick and choose. Um, so some facts you might ignore if they don't help you to express your true self. Other facts you will cling to tightly if, if they kind of anchor this true self that you're trying to give expression to. Um, second trend is, is one I'm giving the name saturation. Uh, learned about this in a conversation with some of our high school students here uh, who are part of our IDX ministry. And, and they said, hey, when, when we're with our friends and we talk about our faith in Jesus, they seem to have a sense that they already know everything they need to know. Um, saturation. There's, there's nothing more I need to learn about religion to... to to know what choices to make in that area of my life. There's nothing more I need to know about the Bible or Christianity. I already understand it. Um, so it can be hard to, you know, have an open conversation with someone who thinks they've already kind of mastered the field. So we just need to be prepared for that. Many of our neighbors will, um, will maybe feel like they don't have a whole lot to learn from us, so we're going to talk about how what a good strategy might be uh, today. But before we get to that third strategy or third missionary skill, I want us to talk about a third trend in our culture. It's the the word deconstruction um, captures it. Um, <clears throat> so I was introduced to this as a philosophy student at Clemson University. You know, Clemson is known as a fine liberal arts school <clears throat> with a thriving philosophy department, right? No. I was the second person ever to graduate from Clemson with a philosophy degree. Yeah, it, the first year it was offered as a major was my freshman year, right? So um, we were a small department. We were just getting started. But we, it, we met this guy named Jacques Derrida. Uh, not literally. He didn't come to our class. But um, Derrida, 
is a, a French uh, philosopher, born in 1930, died in 2004. And um, if you hear the word deconstruction, he's the one who, um, he didn't come up with that word, but, but he's the one who popularized it. And Derrida um, taught ideas like this. Language is fluid. So, so his philosophy has become like a way of looking at the whole world, but he talked mostly about language and how language works. Um, and so, you know, language is fluid. So uh, what that leads to is this sense that whatever is meaningful, whatever communicates meaning, isn't fixed and unchanging. It, it's in a state of constant change. So uh, by, by uh, implication, if something never changes, it probably isn't meaningful. Right? So the, the more fixed and unchanging unchang a truth claim is, the less likely it is to appeal to someone as a source of real meaning if they're adopting this approach, right? So <clears throat> from language is fluid to meaning and truth are fluid and in this state of constant flux. Um, second thought, texts outlive authors. Um, what something meant in the past doesn't determine what it means in the present. If someone writes an idea down, then that idea can come to have a totally new meaning after their death because their text is going to outlive them. Um, so again, from a claim about language, texts outlive authors. Language, you know, words written down last longer than the lives of those who write them to a, a, a broader view of the whole world that... Um, Hey, just because something was interpreted this way in the past doesn't mean we have to keep interpreting it that way. Um, so uh, there's kind of a slipperiness here about uh, truth claims. And then finally, this is where you're going to see the word deconstruction is related to the word constructs. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, if, if in the past people would have said, I can make a claim about truth or meaning, and that reflects something of reality, Derrida says, no, actually, the truth claims we make, they, they involve us imposing cultural constructs on reality. Um, so if you wanted to get to reality, you would have to deconstruct. Right? We'd have to deconstruct meaning you'd have to deconstruct truth claims and he kind of builds this system where only really super specialized trained literary critics would have the skill to to do that with the implication that the average person can't know truth can't know reality can't see through the cultural constructs um, and because texts outlive authors people have taken his ideas and gone much further with them than he might have intended. <laughs> um, and so this has become a whole way of looking at all of reality, not just uh, talking about language or literary criticism. So that's Derrida and um, his thoughts about uh, deconstruction. So if you wanted to give it a kind of a definition, this comes from a, an article by... A man named oh, hang on, John Bloom on the Desiring God website. 
called What Does Deconstruction Even Mean? If you wanted a little introduction. Um, a Critical Dismantling of Tradition and Traditional Modes of Thought. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because tradition and traditional ways of thinking are pretty fixed. And they don't change. And deconstruction means, hey, wait a minute, everything's up for grabs, everything's changing. And if it's staying fixed, it probably doesn't really convey much meaning. Because that which is meaningful is constantly changing. Uh, so we've got to break down anything that looks traditional. <clears throat> the way we break it down might be we just reject it altogether. Right? And hey, in some cases, that's very good, isn't it? There are some traditions that need to be discarded. Owning other people as though they are property and less than human is a part of human tradition. That's a traditional outlook on the world. The practice of slavery. That's a part of tradition that needs to be changed and discarded. Um, so, but, but not every piece of tradition needs to be discarded. And so the wisdom to sort those things out. Um, as opposed to a, a, a thorough commitment to deconstruction says, we're going to take that and apply it to everything. Right? And we're going to throw out a lot of babies with a lot of bathwater. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so you may have heard this term applied specifically to uh, Christianity. Whereas many, many people in the Christian tradition are practicing today what they would call deconstructing their faith. And you may know someone who is in the process of doing that. You may know someone who has gone through that process. And often at the end, uh, it, it, it results in someone saying, I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore. You know, I've taken a hard look at every facet of this Christian tradition and these traditional ways of thinking and they just don't work for me anymore they don't fit the world I live in anymore and so I'm stepping away from the Christian faith completely some people who uh, deconstruct their faith wind up in a different place and and they may start with um, uh, a fairly traditional uh, recognizable historic orthodox Christian commitment and wind up with um, a, a form of Christian commitment that's difficult to recognize in terms of historic orthodox Christianity. If you wanted to see uh, some examples of that, there's a podcast called The Liturgists. The Liturgists. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, you might think, you, you know, the Liturgist podcast is, is a group of worship leaders talking about better worship practices. No, the Liturgist podcast is a, a group of people who are, have or are dis deconstructing their Christian faith. And so if you wanted to see how, how do some people who fit in this group of nuns think about Christianity, um, that podcast would give you some some examples of that and um, there's kind of a progression there where it's the early seasons of the podcast um, 
sort of start out with, with more recognizable categories of Christian faith and the later seasons have, have the, the, the process of deconstruction has been at work. Um, so this, this is the trend um, in our culture. I want to pause here for a moment and say, um, here's some good news. Sometimes deconstruction leads to reconstruction, right? Um, there's a leader in our heritage, um, a man named Francis Schaeffer. He was a, a pastor in a denomination that wound up merging with our denomination in 1983. And... Um, he went through a really significant crisis of faith at one point in his ministry and questioned everything. He just, he looked at what he said he believed and said, my daily, my daily life is so, it lacks joy. And if these things I say I believe were really true, I, there should be more joy in my daily experience of the Christian faith. And I don't see it reflected in the way the Christian church interacts with each other. And, and so he went through this season of just kind of going back to zero and questioning everything. And uh, the result was a firmer commitment to uh, Christian belief, a firmer conviction that the, what the Bible teaches is true, a firmer commitment to Christ, and the creation of a ministry called Labrie, um, which means shelter. And so in Switzerland, he and his wife opened their home for people who were wrestling with deep questions and a really significant ministry that has now impacted tens of thousands of people across several continents. And um, so um, sometimes a critical questioning of our own tradition can actually lead to growth. So I don't want us to hear this, this sort of trend in our culture like, a, oh, the sky is falling. Um, now, there are some implications for us in our calling as missionaries. One is this. We live in a culture where it's easy to be a nun. How does this trend toward deconstruction make it easy to be a nun do you see a way that there's a natural connection there right being a nun means i'm not trying to find truth or meaning inside some religious community or tradition well why is that easy well if all of tradition is is kind of under the microscope and and up for questioning, it's just an environment where this 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 gets easier, right? Um, so I I think for us and our missionary calling, what that means is um, we enter into conversations with a bit more sympathy, right? Like instead of going into a conversation and thinking, you know, for thousands of years people have thought it, that it's it's better to seek truth and meaning inside a community than off on your own how could you be so silly to to step back and go oh well wait a minute if 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 you're constantly hearing that these things are true it makes sense that you would reach that conclusion 
if I take a minute and kind of feel it from the inside, well, no, no wonder. Yeah, that makes sense. I may not think the starting point is right or wise, but I can see how you get to that end point if you start here. Right, so it's a different way of entering into the conversation. It's easy to be a nun. Some nuns have deconstructed their faith. So again, we don't assume that someone who says, I, I, I'm not part of any religious tradition, don't assume that they never were. Don't assume that they don't have categories for talking about religious belief or even Christian faith. Um, and maybe beware that, that they might have some pent-up hostility from some bad experiences in the past. Um, we, we go in, you know, learning and listening. Um, and a uh, couple of things to expect in conversation uh, with people who are in this group of nuns. Notice that deconstruction as a mindset is now assumed in our culture it is not ever argued for if you were to say to someone wait a minute you just made the assumption that all traditional modes of thinking have to be questioned and i want you to defend that you may be the first person ever to say that to someone like we live in a time when if someone stands up in public and says I have cast off all tradition. I am forging a new path for myself. Most people in the room are going to go, yeah, of course you are. That makes perfect sense. That's what we're all doing. Um, don't be surprised if someone assumes this approach of deconstruction. Don't be surprised if they don't argue it. Don't be surprised if they couldn't explain it. If you were to say to someone, hey, what you're... What you're saying sounds a lot like this movement known as deconstruction. How do you define deconstruction? How do you define air? Right? How does a fish define water? Many people who have embraced this mindset have absorbed it, and they may not be able to articulate it. Right? So just, just be prepared for that. Don't be shocked. Um, well, and, and that relates to this uh, other expectation. Um, don't expect nuns to discuss truth and meaning in ways that are familiar to Christians. In other words, don't expect someone who isn't a Christian to discuss reality the way that a Christian would. I mean, why would we do that? Don't expect someone who doesn't know English to start speaking English. Don't expect someone who doesn't know Spanish to be able to converse well in Spanish. Right? It's a similar concept. Uh, to, you know, kind of lower your eyebrows a bit. You know, so sometimes in conversation, somebody's going to say something that sounds a little, uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe like far out, <laughs> and your eyebrows go up. Woo! Hey! No, bring the eyes back, eyebrows back down. Don't, don't be surprised that someone who's not part of the Christian tradition or any religious tradition or maybe who has intentionally stepped away from that kind of faith. Don't be surprised that they're going to talk about truth and meaning in ways that are very different from how a Christian might do that. Right? So we enter into that conversation 
uh, differently. Okay, a missionary skill. We're going to develop this one next week more as well, but um, we're going to root it in this sense that uh, Christ was sent into our world so that we could have eternal life. Jesus is praying on the night before his death, and he says to his Father, this is eternal life, that they, the people he's praying for, which is the church, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why do we keep saying we are a missionary people with a missionary calling? It's because we have a missionary Savior, um, a missionary God who sent uh, his Son into the world so that we could have life. Um, what does that sending so that others might have life look like for us? We need to learn a new language. We need to be familiar with what's going on in our culture, especially as that's different from uh, what we may have known. Um, translating the gospel into friendship. So if I'm learning this new language and I'm not very fluent at it, here's the language I am fluent at. I know how to make friends with people. Uh, Randy Pope talks about his strategy for evangelism, a three-step plan. First one is you introduce yourself. You say, hi, my name is Randy. <laughs> and second one is you make friends. Just become a friend. And the third is you, you, you invite them to do something together with you <laughs> where they might learn more about Christianity. Right? But, but notice how simple it is. Right? Step one, hi, my name is. And step two, Let's talk. Um, what does that friendship look like? Um, remembering this encouragement from our high school students, um, as I was talking with them, they said, uh, people may not be open to Christianity, but they are open to being friends with Christians. And that's an encouragement for us. What would this kind of friendship look like? I want to pause for a moment and say, I hope you're feeling a little bit of tension. On the one hand, there's this kind of um, really deep and kind of abstract and maybe hard to get your head around philosophical underpinning deconstruction. And, and it's been around for decades and, and it took root in Western Europe before it made its trek across the Atlantic. And so by the time it got to the U.S., it was already pretty firmly rooted. You know, it's like those weeds where you're trying to pull them up, but guess what? Before you saw the first one, the root system was already there. You're already decades behind. <laughs> and you're dealing with stuff that, that's like, I, who, who's Jacques Derrida? What is a philosophy major? Um, And on the other hand, we're talking about friendship. It's simple. It's every day. Right? Um, again, the rhythm of the gospel. How complex are all the problems introduced into our universe by human rebellion against God? How complex is our need for salvation? And yet the solution to it is... God entering our world in the form of a human infant. 
very familiar, um, miraculous, incredible in terms of the love it took for Jesus to do this. But kind of simple in the sense of, right, human life in the real world. Similarly for us, um, not trying to solve every problem of human culture and not trying to fix every flaw of human philosophy, but just trying to get to know one person and have a real conversation with them about truth. You may not know how to spell Derrida. I had to look it up myself. Um, But you know how to be friends with people. You know how to listen well. You know when somebody makes a comment that sounds like a passing fleeting comment, but it really reflects something deeper and they're hurting, and they would love it if you would follow up and say, can we talk more about that? You know how to do that. Because you know how to love people. The reason you know how to love people is you, if you know Jesus, you know how to be loved. Um, so we start with, you know, just learning to listen with love. The person you are befriending is a whole person. They're not a set of ideas. They're not an abstraction. They're not a spokesperson for deconstruction. They don't represent all the nuns summed up into one big category. It's a person. A person made in God's image. Uh, We listen with love when we listen to people like they are people. Um, They're not projects. They're not, you know, oh, here's a great opportunity for me to win an argument. You know, I get to score a point for Jesus. No, this is a person. And I get to love this person. Um, we listen with love. Friends, friends listen with love. Listening well. Um, one of Francis Schaeffer's rules was, if I, he would say, if I have an hour to spend with someone who isn't a Christian, I would listen for 55 minutes and speak for five. The listening indicates love. It also means that when you get to speak, you're speaking to the real issue. You know how often it is that that the first five minutes or ten minutes of a conversation is just someone venting, and the thing that's really going on doesn't come out in those first few minutes, and you have to keep listening and keep listening and keep listening to get to the, oh, yeah. Maybe that's the thing we need to talk about. Um... And we said earlier, you know, learning to lower our, eye, our eyebrows. Don't be shocked when people speak their native language. If somebody's native language is atheism, don't be shocked that they talk like they don't believe in God. <laughs> if somebody's native language is, I'm a Christian, but I'm trying to do Christianity on my own with no connection to a church or a Christian community, don't be shocked if they speak like that. that's their native language, right? We listen well by listening to the people uh, they were actually in conversation with and then um, here's a good summary of what it is to listen well uh, by a man named Andy Patton he works with a ministry based in Nashville called the Rabbit Room Um, listen to their words as seriously as you hope they will listen to yours So if you had five minutes to talk 
to someone who's not a Christian about Jesus. How do you want them to listen? Do you want them to listen impatiently, waiting to move on to the next conversation topic? Do you want them to listen with half, half a heart, one eye on their phone? No, you hope they'll listen with their whole self on the line, with all of eternity hanging in the balance. Like what you're saying is the most interesting thing they've ever heard. Well, we've got to return the favor. If Schaefer's right, we've got to listen for 55 minutes <laughs> this intently with the hope that they'll listen with equal intent. Um, right? So that's a great rule of thumb. And again, so simple, obvious. You, you, you don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be an incredible evangelist. You don't have to be the next C.S. Lewis to have an effective ministry to nuns. All you have to do is say, Hi, my name's Jimmy. What's going on in your world? What are you interested in? Wow, that's what you believe? Tell me how you wound up in that place. That sounds like it'd be an interesting story. Tell me more about it. Um, all right. Listening with love, listening well, and finally, um, a couple thoughts about listening wisely. Again, we're, we're going to talk more about this kind of friendship and, and hospitality next week. Um, so for today, let's just say one thing about listening wisely. Be patient. There's a temptation to push back on every issue that someone brings up in conversation. Um, that if someone says something that, 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 that you think differently about, it's like, oh, let me, let me push back. Let me argue with you at that point. Let, let, me, let me question whether that's the only right way to see this. Um, we might need to listen more and see what big themes emerge in conversation. Because it could be that someone, you know, kind of throws out a scattershot of all these viewpoints they have that, that don't sound like they fit the world we actually live in. But it could be one of those keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. And so rather than going down every rabbit trail and getting distracted, we, we listen long enough to know, mm, this, is, this is what's really bothering this person. I wonder if I could really help them here as opposed to trying to, you know, play whack-a-mole um, and answer every question along the way. So that's part of what it would mean to listen wisely. We'll develop those thoughts some more next week. For today, um, I want us to spend some time talking around our tables uh, uh, about a, a few uh, questions. Let me uh, put those up on the screen for us. So, um, kind of one way to summarize what we've said this morning and what we'll say again next week. Missionaries build friendships that help people take the next step toward Jesus. So start with this around your table. 
what might the next step toward Jesus look like for a nun? If you could put yourself in, in the shoes of someone who's in that category, what would that next step look like? Would it go all the way from, you know, nun to baptized in one day? Is that the next step? Or, or is, what, what, what do you think? Um, maybe you don't have to imagine that. Maybe you're actually thinking of a friend of yours and, <laughs> and uh, things you've seen them wrestling with or conversations you've had recently. Um, and what might make it hard for them to take that next step? What would the next step look like? Is there anything that would make that hard? Um, so these questions are aimed at, at sort of helping us to sit in the, in the uh, perspective of someone who's part of this group of people who are saying, I, whatever spiritual or religious reality is out there, I don't need a community or a tradition to find it. I'll, I'll do it on my own. What would the next step toward Jesus look like for that person? What are some of the things that might make it hard for them to take that next step? So take a few minutes around your tables. Introduce yourselves to one another if you don't all know each other already. And um, take a crack at those questions.